Richard, Duke of Gloucester, was Edward IV's youngest brother. But in historical terms, he has become a figure of immense proportions. Everyone has a view about him, and the power of his historical presence was amply demonstrated in 2012, when his body was discovered in Leicester and dug up. The world's press gathered and the interest was global. Everyone that has written or spoken about Gloucester since 1483 is mindful of the dramatic events from April to July 1483, when he went from being the late king's loyal brother to being the king in his own right. But if we are to have any hope of teasing out what this man was like and why he acted as he did, then we need to see him as contemporaries did. During Edward IV's reign, no one, not a single person in the whole of Christendom, could have told you that Gloucester would seize the throne from his brother's son. We need to adopt the same viewpoint at the start of our analysis. We must not view Gloucester either as a saint or as a monster. We have to take the events as they unfolded without hindsight. I was going to say without the luxury of hindsight, but as you will have noticed, reliable knowledge of events in the 15th century can be a little hard to come by. So let's start by looking at what Gloucester was up to in Edward's second reign during the 1470s and early 1480s. We have already seen that in the early 1470s, Gloucester was involved in a long-running and sometimes quite bitter dispute with his elder brother, George, Duke of Clarence. This dispute was about two things, Gloucester's marriage and the Warwick inheritance. Surely it's all the same thing, isn't it? Because didn't the marriage give him the inheritance? Well, only to a limited extent. Gloucester's marriage was in itself an important event. For any nobleman, as we have seen, your marriage mattered a great deal. Gloucester rightly saw Anne Neville, the younger of Warwick's two daughters and co-heiress to his estates, as the best match available. She was 16 years old and already a widow, having been married, albeit briefly, to Edward of Westminster, the Lancastrian Prince of Wales, killed at Tewkesbury. A marriage to Anne would bring Gloucester some lands, but more than that, she was a Neville, and for many folk in the north, Neville blood was worth a lot more than Plantagenet blood. Marrying Anne put Gloucester at the head of the Neville affinity in the north. Clarence, of course, did his best to prevent the marriage, but as we have seen, he failed. So what about the Warwick lands? If the king had simply attainted Warwick and his brother John Neville after their deaths at Barnet in 1471, all their lands, from whatever source, would have gone to the crown. They would then have been in the gift of the king, so he could distribute them as he pleased. However, since Clarence was already married to the elder heiress, Isabel Neville, he did not want the lands to go to the crown at all. He wanted them to go to him, preferably all of them. If that happened, then he would not be dependent upon the king's favour to keep his lands in the future. Gloucester, too, did not want the lands to go to the crown for the same reason. That is, he wanted his share. Well, as I've already explained, the Neville inheritance was complicated. 
half of the lands were still held by his widow Anne Beauchamp. Remember, it was by his marriage to her that Warwick had gained such a spectacular array of lands to start with. Only when she died, therefore, would that part of the inheritance go to her daughters and their husbands. You may also recall that Edward, to pacify his brothers, came up with a rather grubby little solution to this problem, by having Parliament declare that the widow's lands would be dealt with as if she was already dead. Though that freed up her lands, because many of Warwick's other Neville estates had to be inherited through the male line of descent, his daughters, and therefore their husbands, actually had no claim upon them at all. There were other male descendants of the Neville family who still had rights to such lands, notably John Neville's son, George. Since George was only six years old, Gloucester had been given temporary charge of his lands. As part of their solution to the brothers' quarrel in the mid-1470s, Parliament also decided to disinherit George Neville and give his lands to Gloucester. So, the upshot of all this manoeuvring and intrigue was that Clarence kept much of Warwick's lands in the south and Gloucester received most of them in the north. For Gloucester, these lands were the bedrock of his position of dominance in the north. Well, that all sounds pretty straightforward, but not quite, because there was a bit of a catch to Gloucester's gains. Now, if you've nodded off while I've been explaining some of the intricacies of inheritance, now is the time to tune back in. The catch was that Gloucester and his male heirs would continue to enjoy the Neville estates as long as the disinherited George Neville, or his male heirs, was still living. So, if George was to die with no male heir, then Gloucester would only have the lands for life, and after his death, other Neville heirs could claim them. Though you may think this arrangement overly complicated, the purpose of it was to punish John Neville's descendants for his treason, but not to punish another Neville who might be entitled to inherit his lands if he had no heirs. What did it mean in practice? It meant that Gloucester's hold over a vast area of land was at best tenuous and dependent upon two factors, the life of George Neville and the continued favour of the king. In his dispute with Clarence, Gloucester had shown that he was determined to assert his position and carve out an area of influence for himself in the north. I should stress that in that regard, he was no different from Clarence or indeed any other powerful lord in England. Marriages and sharp dealing were often used to gain both influence and landed estates. Gloucester received other lands too, mainly those of the attainted Lancastrian John de Vere, Earl of Oxford. It is interesting to note that Gloucester was also able to force Oxford's elderly mother to relinquish her estates to him as well, in tactics not too dissimilar from the treatment of his mother-in-law, Anne Beauchamp. This action, and others, in building his portfolio of lands, shows us that Gloucester had a bit of a ruthless streak when it came to securing his own interests. Gloucester's establishment of his power base in the north was only partly to do with land ownership. It was also achieved by making connections 
with those men of Warwick's affinity, such as the Conyers, Metcalfs and Harringtons. Much of this was done during the 1470s when he also recruited men of lesser rank, such as Robert Brackenbury and Richard Radcliffe, both of whom would serve him to the end. There was nothing remotely sinister about all that. It was how society worked. Great lords had retainers who served them and whose interests were in turn supported by their lords. After the fall of the Nevilles in 1471, it was not inevitable that Gloucester would become the dominant power in the north. Several other men had designs on that prize. Henry Percy, Earl of Northumberland, who you will recall was restored to his estates by Edward IV, expected that after the fall of Warwick, he would dominate the north, as in centuries past. Thomas Lord Stanley also believed that he would be able to extend his already powerful position in the region. The most likely conflict, though, had to be between the Percys and Gloucester's new Neville allies. Percys and Nevilles at each other's throats in the north? We know where that can lead. Clearly, unrest in the north was the very last thing Edward IV wanted. Stability there was crucial to his rule. But it took several years to bring Gloucester's influence in the north under control. Not until 1474 were disputes between Gloucester and both Lord Stanley and Northumberland settled. Compromises were made, but two things were clear. Firstly, Gloucester could pull rank over both Stanley and Northumberland. They would work together, but Gloucester had precedence over the other two. Secondly, Gloucester's supremacy was still very much subject to the will and pleasure of his brother, the king. Once Gloucester's position was firmly established, so after about 1475, tensions in the north calmed down a lot. Gloucester seemed easier to work with, more collaborative with his fellow northern magnates, Northumberland and Stanley. Gloucester was resident for the most part in the north and began to consolidate his many land holdings there, effectively swapping some southern estates for some more northern ones. Over the years, he was a great patron of religious houses and buildings in the north. His influence stretched over a wider area of the north than even Warwick's. Cumbria, Northumberland, Yorkshire and Durham were his domain. His domination effectively removed the old northern rivalries such as that between the Percys and the Neville. It was in many respects, therefore, a force for good in the north, at a time when the economy of the region was taking quite a hit. This then was exactly the outcome that his brother had hoped for. Gloucester keeping peaceful control of the region by settling disputes between lesser lords and maintaining the rule of law. It's clear that Gloucester took this duty seriously, even supporting those who had been wronged by one of his own clients. He justifiably earned a reputation as a man who promoted justice in the North. What is equally clear, though, from his actions throughout, is that where his own personal rights were concerned, he was prepared to bend the law to the point of breaking it, though it does not detract from what he achieved from 1475 to 1483. As the king's chief magnate in the north, it was also Gloucester's responsibility 
to coordinate the defence of the kingdom's northern border with Scotland, a frequent source of trouble in the past. You may recall that in the 1460s, Queen Margaret had attempted to use Scotland in her attempts to put her husband Henry VI back on the throne. Though she was unsuccessful, one of her bargains had involved ceding possession of the border town of Berwick to the Scots. The loss of Berwick was strategically important to England since it controlled Scottish access to the northeast. But Edward IV, ever the pragmatist, had been keen to build bridges with the Scots rather than tear any more down. Hence a truce in 1474 by the Treaty of Edinburgh. But the treaty only lasted until 1480, when the two countries went to war again. Why? Basically because the border Scots and the border English wanted war, not peace. And, like his northern colleagues, Gloucester favoured war too. Because King Edward saw Scotland as merely one part of his whole diplomatic strategy, he wanted stable relations with the Scots, especially given the need to commit resources to support his ally Burgundy against the wily Louis XI of France. But Gloucester's view was entirely parochial. As hereditary warden of the West March, Scotland was a threat to his domain and needed to be dealt with. It's clear that Edward felt obliged to back his brother on this. He appointed Gloucester as Lieutenant General in 1480 and again in 1482 to wage war against the Scots on his behalf. Gloucester was successful in taming the Scots and recaptured Berwick in 1482. He was rewarded in February 1483 by the creation of a county palatinate for him, a sort of independent domain within the kingdom. This palatinate would include Cumberland and an adjacent part of southwest Scotland, the only slight drawback being that Gloucester hadn't yet conquered that bit of Scotland. Nevertheless, in 1483, Gloucester could look forward to a bright future in the north, where he had made himself indispensable to his brother. Though he was clearly a man of the north, there is a lot of nonsense talked about his relationship with the court in London. Yes, he was rarely in the south after the death of Clarence in 1478, but there was no mysterious hostility or rift there. He attended important state occasions and was a vital part of the government. His place was in the north because that's where he was needed and that's where he exercised his influence. Compare him with Warwick, who it was notable spent less and less time in his northern heartland as he became more embroiled in national politics. Gloucester, by contrast, was exactly where Edward wanted him to be, with his finger firmly upon the northern pulse. We are told that there was animosity between Gloucester and the Queen, but there is no evidence of it at all before the cataclysmic events of 1483. Nor is there any evidence of a rift with Anthony Woodville, Earl Rivers. Indeed, as late as March 1483, Rivers was actually asking Gloucester to arbitrate in a dispute he was involved in. Now, you don't invite someone you don't trust to judge a dispute in which you are a party. Only after the death of Edward IV did anyone refer to any hostility between Gloucester and any of the Woodvilles. If you doubt this, ask yourself why on earth Gloucester would worry about the Woodvilles 
when he had such immense power in the north, far more power than they had put together. Always remember, though, that Gloucester, like everyone else, did not expect his brother to die so soon. Though Gloucester was doing well, he depended, like everyone else, upon the favour of the king. So, if, for example, his brother were to die, and there was a new king, then all bets would be off. <laughs>